Hey, good morning. Reach Montreal and everybody joining us online. We're back um, to using our online platforms for uh, our weekly series and teaching. And uh, I'll just apologize ahead of time. Uh, we don't have AC, so if you see me sweating over here, uh, feel free to sweat with me. Uh, that would be great and super supportive and would appreciate it. Um, so this morning, we're going to actually finish, wrap up a series that we've been in for the last little while, uh, going through a study on First Peter. And uh, next week, we're going to start a new series, um, a new series called Scripture, God's Word, Our Lives. And what we're going to be doing there is looking specifically at uh, what the Bible is, uh, how we got the Bible, how we should approach the Bible, and then how to use the Bible, how to study it and how to use it and apply it to our lives, especially uh, thousands of years later, looking at ancient literature for our modern lives. So that's what we're going to be starting next week. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, But before we get there, this week we're finishing off uh, our series, Hope for Exiles, Words from 1 Peter. And last week we looked specifically at how Peter is kind of fleshing out this theme of holiness, the idea that exiles are are strangers, that we don't quite belong, that that, uh, this is not our home. And last week we looked specifically at what mission looks like from the margins, the idea of, of us as the church with very different views, very different values, uh, living for a very different king uh, named Jesus. How do we engage a culture that is very different um, than us? And how do we specifically uh, be on mission for a culture from the margins, that where we're not the dominant worldview anymore? This week, uh, Peter finishes his letter specifically with a, a strong warning, a call to be alert to some things specifically, telling us what it is that we're actually guarding against and calls attention to the true enemy, the true enemy of the church, the true enemy of this mission as the gospel goes out into the world that doesn't know Jesus. All right, so let me pray before we jump in and we'll, we'll do that and have some time unpacking that. Father, we, uh, we thank you that we still can in a strange season with distancing and not being able to kind of go about our normal rhythms. We, we thank you that we can still do this. We thank you that we can still gather, that we can still corporately be together in a sense and in a way. And I pray that that would be uh, made about your word, not about kind of an experience from our living room, but instead that this would be about your word and what you say about yourself. I pray that you would use it, that you would apply it, that you would challenge our hearts, that you would use it to, again, um, bring us closer to you, draw us closer to you and who you are. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 1 Peter chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 6. Here's what Peter says as he wraps up his letter. Humble yourselves, therefore. So this is like his final thing. Therefore, because of everything I've already said, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Because he cares for you, you can cast all of your worries on him. Now, what's interesting here is what Peter's doing is something that he's done throughout the letter is that he's calling attention to a distinguishing mark of a Christian, the distinguishing mark and character trait of a Christian, and that is humility, the idea of of meekness, of humility, of gentleness, Um, not a posture of kind of fighting for control and grasping after control, but that the Christian identity first and foremost is one of surrender. It's one of submission to what he says, the mighty hand of God. That to be a Christian is to not just kind of like be master and Lord of our life and invite God into that that journey with us, but it's to actually surrender and submit all control to his mighty hand because he's good. 
And this is countercultural then and countercultural now. Because the idea of humility, the idea of willingly and freely laying down control in a culture that screams for self-empowerment and hustle and making it and kind of getting to the top and getting yours, the posture of a Christian is very different. And it's interesting that Peter uses this terminology, this phrase, the mighty hand of God. That right away is a hyperlink bringing us back to the wording that's used in Exodus, where we hear about God delivering Israel specifically from slavery with what? A mighty hand, his mighty hand. And Peter says, because of God's strength, because of God's power, we can actually cast everything that we're worried about on him. Everything that makes us anxious, that he actually cares. He cares for us. He is stronger and, and mightier than those things that, that cause anxiety for us. And because of that, we can cast them on him. And I think for us, it's a timely reminder too, with so much kind of like fear and so many things pressing in and drawing our eyes towards objects that could lead us to worry and be anxious, Peter starts with this truth. He starts with this truth about the nature and character of God because we need to hear this. (laughs) And we need to hear this, especially because of what Peter says next. Watch what he follows this up with in verse eight. So be sober-minded, be watchful, wake up, he says. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood, so your brothers and sisters, your family throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, he will do this, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now there's a lot going on here and there's a lot to say, but Peter starts and he says, be watchful, open your eyes, be alert, be clear headed about this. Wake up because there is a real enemy offering false hope. There's a real enemy that is offering false hope and false objects of hope only lead us to worry and be anxious and ultimately unfulfilled and unsatisfied. And so he's saying there's a real enemy. There's a real fight here to shift our, our gaze and our eyes to the object of hope that truly is in control. And that is only God himself. And then he specifically says that your enemy and mine is the devil. And he describes the devil as one who is prowling and roaring like a lion. Now, listen, this is not going to be a full kind of teaching and study of the demonic and and, uh, the Satan and the devil throughout scripture. But historically and especially today, we have done strange things with this. We haven't quite been able to kind of navigate the supernatural and the demonic well. Uh, To some of you, it might just be nonsense just kind of superstitious, pre-modern ideas and beliefs that we've moved on from. You know, those were explanations in our pre-modern, kind of pre-scientific era. And thank God for science because we've moved on from those things. 
Um, where others of us, when we think about that, we, we tend to have an unhealthy obsession or focus on the paranormal or the supernatural or the demonic. And, you know, TV shows like Ghost Hunters or uh, movies, and, and this is just shows up in Hollywood all over the place. Movies like The Exorcism of Emily Rose or um, TV shows on the paranormal and the supernatural. Maybe that's you. Maybe this is kind of like a, a, a really important topic for you. Um, others of us again look at the work of the devil as kind of only like demon possession or uh, you know speaking in Latin tongues and like spewing venom or listening to death metal music or carving pentagrams into our skin um, and others again maybe just look at the demonic and the devil as like well anything bad or inconvenient that happens to me calls for spiritual warfare like we're going to soup, it's a spiritual war and, uh, you know, we're casting demons out of stuff and, you know, we get a flat tire on the way to the church and we're casting a demon out of the flat tire or whatever it is. So listen, we have done strange things with this and I want to pull us back to biblically what specifically Jesus teaches about the devil and the work of the devil and what Peter is doing here and why he's pointing this out. Notice first that Peter says that the devil is prowling and roaring like a lion. Now for you and I, when we think about a lion, you know, we think immediately Lion King um, or we go, you know, African Lion Safari and we think about just kind of like going out or, or the best National Geographic documentary about lions or whatever. But you gotta understand in Peter's audience, lions were not uh, native and indigenous to where they lived. They were not. In fact, the Roman Empire imported exo- exo- exotic animals Um, especially lions, from elsewhere to bring them in to use them in the Colosseum. And lions in particular were used as a form of capital punishment and as a spectacle for the crowds. And there's there's a term in in Latin, uh, damnatio ad bestias, which is the condemnation to beasts. And that was a form of capital punishment. And if so, the criminals could just be fed literally to lions and the Colosseum would be full of 100,000 people coming around to watch this spectacle. So when you understand the context here, um, Peter's first audience would really see, I mean, lions as, as a real threat. This is not make-belief. This is not superstition. This is, this is real, that, that there's actually something very real pressing in on us. There's a real threat. And he also says that the, the lion is, is roaring that you can hear the lion, that, that the devil is roaring like a lion. Now, what's interesting about that is that male lions actually typically do the roaring where female lions do the actual kind of praying and the, the hunting. And male lions, when they get a little bit older, they lose their teeth and they can't actually hunt. So what they'll do is they'll, they'll roar as a way to, as a scare tactic to announce that an attack is coming, to instill fear in their prey. And Peter takes all of this and he presents it to the church and it it begs the question for you and I, do you know how to recognize the roar of your enemy? Do you know how to recognize the work of the devil? Or do you fit into maybe one of those other categories? Because when the devil prowls, he does it quietly, but he roars loudly. And Peter is trying to get the church to understand that there is a real enemy and there's a real roar and there's a real way to understand and prepare and resist and fight what that enemy is doing. Now, I will just say, however you are, wherever you land on this right now, 
I will just say that the devil, biblically and historically, always does his best work, always does his most dangerous work when people either make too much of him or make too little of him. And that's exactly the point that C.S. Lewis, great Christian thinker and philosopher, makes in his book, The Screwtape Letters. Uh, if you haven't read The Screwtape Letters, I pick it up and, and read it. It's, it's an allegorical story about uh, Screwtape, who is a, um, basically an, an uncle, but a training uh, demon who is taking us protege, Wormwood, and he's training him, his, his nephew, and, and what C.S. Lewis says about why he wrote the book, he says it in his preface. Listen to what he says here. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, human beings, can fall about the devil or the devils, demons. One is to believe in their existence. Di- sorry, one is to disbelieve in their existence altogether. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the demons and the devil, are equally pleased by both heirs and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So you and I need to understand that biblically speaking, we need to see what the Bible offers us because the Bible does offer us a better and more balanced view of this very real enemy, a very real threat to you and me. And throughout the library of scripture, what we see from cover to cover in the Bible is that the library of scripture teaches that the devil is a real and personal intelligence who is set against God, who actively does work against anything that is from God to influence humanity towards anything but God. It's, it's, he's real. It's a real, personal, creature, intelligent that is working to do that. And, and all throughout the Bible, the word the devil is used and the devil means slanderer. It means accuser. Jesus speaks directly of this figure, of the devil, as uh, uses different terms, but he uses the devil, the accuser, the slanderer. He also uses the Satan, right? Not Satan, capital S, proper name. That's, that's not a biblical idea that came a little bit later, uh, but but. The Satan as the accuser, the deceiver, the liar, the tempter. Jesus talks about him as the tempter, the destroyer. Uh, Also talks about him as the serpent of old, pointing us back to the garden and the original lie. And he says that he only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus speaks openly and clearly and teaches very clearly about a very real enemy, a very real threat. But he also refuses to give the devil a proper name. Remember, in the ancient context, a name uh, kind of attributed significance and value. And I think why, why Jesus and the rest of the Bible doesn't give the devil a proper name is because they're not trying to draw too much attention and value to him. Instead, we're warned about his work and what he does, and we're warned to be aware of it, to be alert, to wake up, to open our eyes to the work of the devil. And this is key. What is that work? Well, I think what Peter's getting at and the rest of scripture teaches consistently is that the primary strategy, the main aim of the devil is not, it's not demon possession. It's not giving you a flat tire. It's not haunting you with your uncle's ghost. It's not even night terrors or nightmares, but lies. The devil's primary aim is deception and lies. 
to keep you and I from the truth and to take everything that is true and good and beautiful and counterfeit it to give us an alternative option. Now, what that doesn't mean, though, is that the supernatural piece, the demonic, the spiritual piece isn't real. It is. Jesus shows us that it is. Demon possession is, is real. The supernatural piece is real, but... It is not the enemy's primary strategy. And so church, listen, if you and I spend only our time looking for the work of the devil in those things and ignore his primary aim of lies, we're already in trouble. If you and I are unaware of the enemy's main strategy and we're looking for him to do other things only, you and I are already, already in a dangerous position. And that's why Peter starts with a call to be alert, to open our eyes to be aware of this, to not go looking for his work in places that, that honestly, he's, he's not at work, but to understand that he is at work primarily through deception and lies. Uh, Jesus also refers to the devil as the ruler of this world. And uh, don't, don't think that that means he actually has full control over this or that the cosmos belongs to him. That's not true. We're not locked in a yin and yang kind of good versus evil balanced war here. God is sovereign and always in control and all powerful over all things, including the works of the devil. But that word ruler of the world comes from the Greek word, which actually means the highest position in a government. And so, so there is power. There is authority given to that ruler of this world. And the devil does have real influence over creatures and creation in the cosmos, but it's not, it's not ultimate. In, in other places in scripture, we see the devil described as the God of this world. Uh, that's in, in 2 Corinthians 4. And also the prince of the power of the air. That's in Ephesians 2. And what that is all getting at, and this is important, what that all is getting at, just kind of bring it together before we see what Peter is doing, is he's showing us that there is a real enemy there is a real threat and we are in a real battle. That there's real power to recognize and be aware of, but that there is a real way to resist it and fight against it. And all throughout the letter, Peter has been showing us this. He's been pointing to this. And right in the last couple verses, Peter says he's in Babylon. It's really interesting. Peter's like, yep, yeah, you know, and, and in Babylon, he says that. But, but he's not, right? He's, he's actually writing from Rome. Babylon's not even a thing anymore. Babylon's gone. There's no Babylon anymore. And he's, he's writing from Rome. And this is key. Here's what he's doing. He's saying that the key theme in exile is the idea that Babylon has become more than just an empire, a historical empire, but that Babylon has become a symbol and a word for a culture that lives against, set against God. Not, not just like serving other gods, passively, but actively against the reign and rule of God. And that points us back originally to Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel story, where if you remember the story, what happens in that story is that the same thing that happens in the garden kind of ends up magnified. And in Genesis 11, we see that people set out, humanity sets out to dethrone God and enthrone self by building a city to display their independence from God, to actually celebrate it to brag about it. And God shows up and kind of like spoils that plan, right? And then, and then the story continues. But what, what the Tower of Babel and Babylon become symbolic for is a definition of what is right and good and true and beautiful and what is evil and what is not evil for ourselves. That we are self-authorized beings. 
and to be in Babylon. That's Peter's way of saying, hey, we're not home. That this is a worldly system that isn't just out of step with God's rule and reign, but is actually dead set against it. And it's no different for you and I today. The church in every age and in every place is called to resist the wider culture of Babylon, the wider culture, and live for a different kingdom altogether. To live for a different king, different lord, different emperor in the midst of a different empire. And by doing so, we are resisting the work of the devil. And that's what's really interesting here. Notice that Peter says, your enemy. That the devil who is roaring and roaming and prowling, looking to see who he can devour, is your enemy. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to followers of Jesus and saying this is a real enemy, really after you, that you are his target, that you are his enemy. And it's personal. And he's saying that, yes, it's systemic because we're in Babylon, but it's also personal because the devil is your enemy. So just hear me. If, you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, you don't love and worship Jesus, and you do not say that Jesus is Lord, this doesn't apply to you. The devil actually, frankly, is, is happy with where you are because you're already part of this system. You're already part of a different world altogether. So Peter's talking to the church saying it is your enemy because you're on this side of the cross. That, that, that he doesn't want you there. He doesn't want you worshiping Jesus. He doesn't want allegiance to who God is and what God says. And so when Jesus picks this up and talks about the devil, he is always pointing specifically to the idea that spiritual warfare has less to do with the demonic than we are, than it, and has more to do with warring against lies, warring against things that are counterfeit what God has created. Uh, Jesus makes this point in John 8, where, you know, he, the famous teaching where it's like the truth will set you free. And Jesus is having a conversation with the Jewish religious teachers and they're having a conversation and and Jesus is saying, hey, I only speak of what my father told me and that's the truth. And the reason why you can't hear me is because you are of your father. And then he comes out and he says, the devil, okay? Don't, Don't turn there, I'll just read it for you. Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. It's who he is. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears these words, the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. There's a lot in there. But what Jesus is doing is, is, is amazing. I mean, this is like, this is Jesus for 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 this, right? Like he's just dissing them really hard because what he's saying is you think that you belong to your father Abraham and that you're a part of this, but you're rejecting me. And Jesus comes in, he says, I am the truth. Like that I am the truth embodied, that I am the truth. I am everything that is true about God in flesh, in humanity. And yet you're seeking to kill me in the name of what we're upholding the truth. And Jesus just exposes it for what it is and says that you are of your father the devil. Why? Well, because the best lies are half-truths. He's the origin of all lies. And the language here points us back to this language of seed, of, of 
father and, and seed back to the garden. Where, if you remember in Genesis, we don't have time to unpack it fully, but in Genesis, as a true story of origins, kind of gives us the DNA building blocks of everything that is. Um, when we look at that story, we see a very real enemy, a very real threat, a very real liar come into the story very quickly. So whether you read Genesis as uh, you know literal history with a talking snake, um, I don't know what a, what a talking snake would sound like per se. Um, and I don't think the ancient Near East, you know, they knew that snakes don't talk. So that, that already in the story is kind of like, okay, what's, what's going on here? But if you land there and that's historically, you saw a talking snake in the garden, um, or if you see it as a story of origins explaining uh, the, the origin of evil uh, and the importance of uh, the building blocks of humanity, uh, what the most important thing wherever you land on that is that it is, it is true. You know, textual and, and historical and genre stuff, secondary. The primary point is that the Bible teaches us that the origin of evil, of sin, of death, of, of lies, of the nature of God and the nature of humanity all come from this original story in Genesis. And it's beautiful. I mean, it's just a beautiful foundation to understand the rest of everything to, the, to who God is, the nature and character of God and to the human condition. And when we get to Genesis 3, we see this figure, the serpent. And we see this very real figure. Now, in the ancient Near East, the serpent was a symbol of power and wisdom. And so right away, we're kind of put on notice in the story. And, and he shows up and he, and he speaks. Now, what's interesting is that he speaks to Adam and Eve. And the only other creature, the only other, sorry, being that has spoken has been God as creator. And he's the one that he speaks and, and life comes into being and he speaks and, and it's good and he, he's forming things. And then this enemy shows up in the garden and, and he speaks. And he speaks very differently than God speaks. And what's very interesting is about what he speaks about. The serpent doesn't show up in the garden and attack human beings. He shows up in the garden and he attacks what God has said. He attacks God's word and he attacks who God is. And he does it with three different things. And I'll touch on them real quick here. First, the serpent, the devil, casts doubt on whether what God says is true. And he says, did God really say not to eat of any tree in the garden? So he casts doubt on, like, well, I don't know. I mean, that's, is, that, is that what God's like? Like, he's, he's that restrictive? Like, he's, he's kind of that lame, right? Like, he's against your fulfillment? Like, he's not even letting you go out there? But, but is that true? No, that's not what God said. So he's, he's casting doubt on it. But then secondly, he, he outright denies what God does say. In his conversation with Eve, the, the conversation continues. And then he says, but, but no, you surely won't die. Don't, don't worry about that part. And Eve's like, no, no, no. He said we'd die if we kind of went after that, that fruit. And he's like, no, don't worry about that. You won't die. You won't die. So just a, a, a blatant denial and lie about what God did say. And then third, this enemy distorts what God does say. And he finishes by saying, no, no, no. The only reason God said this is because God knew that you would be like him. So he doubts, casts doubt on who God is. He denies what God says. And then he distorts who God is to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And this is the core problem, isn't it? That you and I were created by God and for God to enjoy everything that is good that comes from God. And then we got an alternative option. We got another option. We got presented with the option to be like God. The irony is we were created in his image already. 
that we were created like God, in a sense to reflect back into creation what this God is like, the goodness of God reflected outwards. And the hiss of the serpent in the garden continues to just go across all of history with, did God really say? That is the lie. That is the strategy. The same strategy of the garden is the same strategy that the enemy, the devil has today. It's the question, did God really say? The strategy is not different. The strategy is the same. God's not God. God's not good. God's not for you. God doesn't care about you. God just, just, he's not, he's not looking out for you. So just go, go look out for yourself. Define what's good for you. Live your truth. God doesn't want you to be happy. So go and be happy because life is about you being happy. That is the lie from the garden. And it's the same lie that has been perpetuated across history. And it's the same lie that your heart fights to resist and work against for the truth that God is the only one that we were made for and will find our satisfaction and identity in. Now, Pastor John Mark Comer makes a similar point. He just hits it with this sentence. He does it beautifully. And here's what he says about the devil's primary strategy. The devil's primary strategy, he says, is deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. Okay, think about those three parts for a second. The devil's primary strategy, not that he doesn't have others, but his primary strategy is deceitful ideas, lies, that play to disordered desires in us. Desires of of wanting the wrong things or wanting too much of the right thing that are normalized in a sinful society. So I love, I love what John Mark does here because what he's doing is he, he addresses the personal piece that's very true to you and I, but then he also shows the systemic piece that, that a society like Babel, like Babylon, is built around these desires, that a sinful society is not going to reflect the goodness of God because it's built on these same lies from the garden. So humanity's biggest problem and your biggest problem and mine and Montreal's biggest problem and the globe's biggest problem is not that we do bad things. It's not behavioral. It's not that we do sinful things sometimes. It's that we want to. It's that we want to. It's that there's, there's a play on our deceitful desires. It's that lies that inform our mind lead us to desire things that ultimately will not satisfy us for what we were made for. And that's where the devil does his best work. We sin because we believe lies about what will make us happy. We sin because we cast doubt on what God said. Did God really say? Who is God really? We sin because we want something other than God and we want it ultimately. And that's what leads us to sinful decisions and actions. Uh, The apostle John writes in 1 John 2 about the exact same thing and he fleshes this out really well again. He gives a helpful explanation of this same lie in the garden that then just gets offered by the devil over history to you and I. He says this, all that's offered in the world, okay, it's the only thing you're gonna find in the world okay, is not from the Father. So if you only go look for satisfaction in the world and not the one who gave it to us as a reflection of his goodness, that, that, that it's, not, it's not of him, right? Here's what he says, three categories. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So the only thing the world can offer you is desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now what's really interesting 
is that that is directly exactly what happens with Eve and the temptation in the garden. The desires of the flesh, the enemy presents that it's good for food. That fruit is good for food. It's, it's appealing to her flesh. And desires of the eyes, it's a delight to the eyes, Eve says. It looks, it looks good. Like it looks really good. And the pride of life, it's gonna make you wise. It's gonna enlighten you. It's gonna make you like God. That's exactly what John is doing in that passage. Is he's showing us that the same lie of the garden is the same lie that is a threat to you and I. And the presentation, what is on offer there is self-actualization. It's self-authority. It's living a self-authorized life. It's to live your truth. God's not good or God's not real. So go and live your truth. And this is exactly, these three things are the exact same categories that happen in Jesus's temptation in the wilderness in Matthew 4. Where Satan appears, right? The devil appears to Jesus and he gives him three different things. First, turn these stones to bread. What's that? Well, that's good for food, good for the flesh. Splendor of all kingdoms, I'll give it to you. I'll give it all to you. That's delight of the eyes. And third, an angelic enthronement, that's pride. It's like, well, if you really are who you say you are, come on. Like, come on, just do something to prove it, prove it. And that's pride, that's being like God. And Jesus responds to all three of those things by saying what? It is written. The devil shows up and says, did God really say? And Jesus' answer is, it is written. Did God really say? It is written. And Jesus does this perfectly in ways that you and I never will and never can. And that's the beauty of this. And so that thread that runs from the garden all the way to the cross is exactly what we see. The devil working for lies just to cast doubt, just to distort, just to deny who God is and what God says. So the alternative on offer that the devil is presenting to you and I is fulfillment, an alternative view of fulfillment, an alternative view of true beauty, an alternative view of knowledge and enlightenment and wisdom. Now, when we think about lies though, especially in a context where fake news and social media platforms are used just to propagate anything and everything, it's so dangerous and it's, it's so, so troubling. But when we think about lies, a lie really is just any belief that does not correspond with reality. It's a belief that doesn't correspond with what is true. And truth is not something you and I determine. Truth is outside of us. It's objectively true. And you and I all believe lies. You do and I do. We believe lies about who we are. We believe lies about our value. We believe lies about our purpose. We believe lies about other people's intentions. We tell stories and false stories about what somebody meant when they said that or when they texted that we read, we do mind reading of people when they, when, they, when they are like that, it must have meant that. We believe lies in our marriages and we think about our spouses different ways. We believe lies about our neighbors. We believe lies about each other in the church. We believe lies about people outside the church. And it's so infectious and it's so serious and it's so dangerous because lies don't correspond with reality. Only the truth does. And Jared Wilson, he wrote a book recently called The Gospel According to Satan. And he talks about eight main lies. Uh, I, I recommend pick it up and give it a read. I mean, he, he talks about eight main lies. You know, some examples are God just wants you to be happy. Um, another one he talks about you only live once. Uh, or uh, third, you need to live your truth. Um, also talks about your feelings are reality. You know, how you feel is what is true. Or your life is what you make it. Or God helps those who help themselves. And he goes through several of these statements that really they do just float around, don't they? They just kind of float around out there, but they're, they're lies. They're lies that ultimately find their origin in the father of lies. 
The same enemy in the garden is the same enemy that we are fighting and resisting today. And here's what Jared Wilson says in his book. The gospel according to Satan, this is so good, doesn't sound like you think it would. If the devil took over a city, it wouldn't be glutted with bars and porn shops and pool halls. Instead, it would be full of well-mannered, tidy pedestrians who were all polite and nice and filled churches where Christ isn't preached. The devil knows he doesn't need the church of Satan to get you. He just needs something shiny. (laughs) Wilson's right. The sneakiness of deceit is what we need to be alert about. The lie is subtle. Throughout scripture, we're told that Satan doesn't kind of come out and go, boogie, 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 I'm gonna get you. But that he actually does it very, very sneaky. That he masquerades as light. That it actually is attractive what he has on offer. That it sounds so good. It sounds so true. So, so here's the point. Just like the garden, the enemy's primary strategy The enemy's primary target is not you. It's not me. It's not our kids. It's not our churches. His primary target is the truth about who God is. The truth about what God says. And Jesus stresses this in Matthew 13 in the parable of the sower. If you know it, if you don't, check it out this week. But Jesus tells a story, a parable, about a sower, a farmer who goes out and throws seed all over the place. And this seed lands in four different places, right? And that seed is, is symbolic for the word of God, what is true about reality, of what is true about who God is and what God is like. And some of that seed lands on the path, Jesus says, and the birds come and they eat it up off the sidewalk. Others lands in like rocky soil and it starts to grow a little bit, but it's, it's just kind of choked out. In the third place, some lands like in a bush in the thorns and it just choked out right away and killed because it can't grow. And in the fourth place, the word lands in good soil, rich soil, and it produces amazing fruit. He says 30 times, 60 times, 100 times, right? And why Jesus does that is because he's showing us that the devil's main aim is to come and pluck God's word out. So when he says it falls on the path and the birds come and pluck it out, he goes on and explains that that bird was symbolic of the devil coming and plucking up the seed, plucking up the word of God. Why? Because it's only... It's the only truth that sets us free. It's the only truth that is free of lies and deceit. It's the only definition of what is truly beautiful and satisfying and good and evil. It's the only thing that corresponds to reality. And Jesus says in the parable that the devil attacks after the seed is sown. That when the word of God goes out, that's when the enemy does his best work. Some of you didn't even hear the roar of the enemy as a lion. Some of you didn't even experience the resistance of the devil until you started to show interest in Jesus. Until you started to show interest in the word of God. And still, until you started to, to look into the Bible and kind of like, well, you know what? Maybe, maybe my secular modern kind of thinking about the Bible being fairy tales isn't true. Let me, let me actually look at this. Let me actually examine the claims in the Bible. And the enemy works so hard to come and pluck the word of God out. So just hear me. The main work that the devil is doing is is he doesn't have to work against you and me in a kind of spiritual warfare sense. All he needs to do is keep us from experiencing the beauty and the power of the God who made us. It's all he needs. It's all he needs. 
So what it does mean is that he doesn't need to work against church attendance. He doesn't need to work against reading your Bible. He doesn't even need to work against you praying to any God or every God or just throwing things out, thoughts and prayers into the cosmos. He doesn't need to work against you celebrating Easter and Christmas with your family. He doesn't need to even work against you being baptized or being a good person. He doesn't need to work against any of that. Why? Because church, all of those things can be done without actually being exposed to the beauty and the power of the word of God. All of those things do and can all happen without exposure to who Jesus truly is as the word made flesh the beauty of Jesus Christ. And that's why false teaching and false teachers are so subtle and so dangerous because false teaching makes much of you and me or makes much of them and doesn't make much of Jesus. And that's all the enemy needs. It's all the enemy needs. Doesn't need all that kind of hyper supernatural spiritual warfare stuff. The enemy just needs to keep us away from what God has always said to be true about who he is and who you are made to be. And C.S. Lewis, one more time from the Screwtape Letters. Listen to what he says. This is written from the perspective of the demons, right? Demons kind of talking to each other. It is funny how mortals always picture us, demons, as putting things into their minds, like putting ideas. I'm going to give you demonic thoughts. But in reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. So what he's saying is the question isn't how is the enemy attacking you? But the question is, what is the enemy working to keep you from? What is the enemy working to keep you from? Not what is he doing to you, but what is he keeping you away from? C.S. Lewis goes on and he continues and he says, Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy, speaking of God, wants him to be a pupil. Wow. The enemy can't keep us away from the church. He'll just make us a connoisseur and a consumer of the church. That's not what the enemy needs. All the enemy needs to do is keep us away from the transforming power of the word of God. And the apostle Paul writes something similar in 2 Corinthians 11 when he says to the church in Corinth, he says, I'm afraid, (laughs) like I fear for you. I'm afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning and his subtlety, your thoughts are also being led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So, follower of Jesus, hear me. As long as your thoughts are led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, the devil is doing work. He's doing his best work. He is working hard against that and you are his enemy so that he can lead us from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And I think that's exactly why Peter finishes the way that he does by saying, resist. Resist and stand firm on your faith. Submit yourselves to the mighty hand of God, Peter says. Be sober, be watchful, be alert. One commentator said it well, I read this week. He said, the devil is a real foe, but he's a defeated foe. He's a real threat, but he is a limited threat. He's on a leash and he can only do what God permits him to do. And God has granted us the grace to resist him. That's the key. Peter says, resist him 
and stand firm in your faith, on your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers and sisters everywhere. And he finishes just by saying to God be the dominion. That the devil doesn't have dominion. That God has all dominion, all power. This is not yin-yang. This is not an equal power struggle between good and evil, but that good has ultimately triumphed over evil. That God has and always will triumph over the work of the devil, including death itself. And that is the good news of the gospel. And what Peter is doing is he's saying, listen for the roar of the enemy, but look to your God. Don't go looking for a witch hunt about the work of the devil, the work of the enemy out there. Instead, hear his roar, listen for his roar, but look to your God who is strong, who has dominion because it's in him we find rest. It's in him we have power. And as 1 John 3, 8 says, the son of God, Jesus Christ, appeared to destroy the work of the devil. That he's left powerless by what Jesus has done. What does that mean? Well, church, listen, if you're in Christ, it means that you and I have an advocate. That if the devil is the accuser, in Christ we have an advocate. That he can accuse us all he wants. That he can accuse us of all the things that we should be ashamed of. All the things that make us unvaluable to God. And Christ is there to advocate for us and tell the Father why sons and daughters need to be brought home despite them. Because of the love of God for us, not because of the value that is inherent in us. And just like the garden, he wants shame to lead us away from God, but the gospel brings us back to God. That's the good news, church. That the gospel makes it possible to not just run away from God in shame, but to come as sinners, full of shame and guilt, because we are guilty because we have believed lies, because we have desires that have gone against the beauty of the God who created us and that the gospel comes and invites us back to be reconciled to God because we have an advocate, because we have a mediator and his name is Jesus. The gospel makes it possible to run towards God away from shame, not away, regardless of our flaws, regardless of our shortcomings, regardless of our sin. So if you haven't experienced this or you have and you're struggling to believe it, understand that lies are working against it. Understand that you are loved, that you are forgiven, that you are free, that justice belongs to our God and that Jesus will finish what he started with his death and his resurrection when he comes to consummate what he started in his kingdom. And that's why Peter finishes where he does. That dominion belongs to God forever and ever. Amen. So church, hear me. Last, and then we'll pray and close. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul talks about the church as, as people who speak the truth to one another in love. You know, we kind of use that as like a, an interesting thing to be nice to each other when we share hard things. But that's not really what, what Paul is doing there. What Paul is doing is he uses the word truthing one another in love. He says that the church is actually supposed to be a community that tells each other the truth and practices the truth. Why is that important? Why is it important for you and I to be connected and plugged in and invested in the local body, the local church? Why? Well, because we're good at not telling ourselves the truth. (laughs) Social media shows us that. (laughs) Just get on Twitter and we'll see how good we are at telling lies and telling lies to each other and believing them. 
this is why we need each other, to truth one another, right? To be truthing one another in love because our God, the word of God in flesh Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. So the church, when it's at its truest, when it's at its best, is a truth-telling community. It's a truth-practicing community, lovingly working to speak truth over lies and point people to the God who cares, who loves, who saves, and frees us. The more time that we spend away from truth is the easier it is for us to believe lies. We need the truth. We need the truth because it is the truth that sets us free. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, you have been chasing us down outside the garden ever since we pursued other things. When our first parents abandoned the truth. I pray for each of us who already know you, God, who already have experienced the power of your word and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just pray that you would reveal to us today some of the lies that we are believing, that we do have a real enemy that is continually whispering and hissing at us lies about who you are, lies about who we are, lies about what we should do with the life that you've given us. And I pray against those and ask that you would replace them with truth and that what would result is beauty. Beauty of of looking upon you and giving you all glory for who you are. And I pray also for everyone that does not yet know you and has not experienced the power of your word, the power of your truth, the power of the good news, the gospel. I pray that today would be the day that spirit, you would push this into their heart and you would push out lies, that you would renew minds and renew hearts in a way that only you can and that it would bring people to yourself and that Lord, we would be able to walk together in community and make much of you because you are truth. So today we give ourselves to you. We ask that you would continue to draw our eyes to what is true so that your beauty, your good news and your hope would be for us strength as exiles in a strange, strange place in a strange world that does not know you and that you would make us effective and equip us for that mission. We love you. We ask all these things in the only name that matters. In Jesus' name, amen.